Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. Good morning, and thank you for joining us. My name is Michael Caduce, and I get the great privilege of stepping in for Dr. Remley Crow uh, for this month's podcast. Remley's enjoying a much-deserved vacation this week. Uh, I'm joined with Jeff Rollman and Tony Fernandez and soon-to-be Bill Toon as we take on our article for the month. Remember that this article will be paired with a article written in EMS World um, entitled Journal Watch. This will be available online for those that are unable to attend the podcast or interested in learning more about the article. Our article for today is Safe Ground Transport of Pediatric Patients, a Qualitative Assessment of Best Practice Guidelines Implementation. This is a great article, and I'm so thrilled to be bringing it today. I think one of the things we oftentimes focus on is cardiac arrest and airway. Those are the fun things that we spend lots of time researching, and our operations topics don't always get the credit that they so deserve. Uh, so this is a great opportunity for us to incorporate some special populations of our pediatric folks, as well as some operational tasks and really show that operations can be data-driven. And there are some great research articles and best practices in the operational realm of EMS. It's not just cardiac arrest or airway management. So uh, thrilled to be able to bring this article to us um, and talk a little bit more just about how we can implement some safe ground transport um, practices into pediatric patients. The other really uh, thing, the thing I really like about this article too, is that it's a thematic analysis based on focus groups of our EMS providers, which means that we talk to EMS providers and the study authors listen to what they had to say. I think that's an important step as we start looking at the future of EMS. It's easy to sit in in, in the you know um, uh, perspective ivory tower and start to make recommendations, but really taking into account the folks on the ground and the folks that are providing care continues to be an, an important step in our quality assurance and our quality assessment, quality management. So I'm really happy that this article really brought all that together and took a took a look at it. QR code on your screen if you want to look at the article that we're going to be reviewing today. Again, the article starts off with the author's description of why this topic is so important. We know that unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death among children. That includes motor vehicle collisions. Additionally, there's about 4,500 ambulance crashes annually. Um, we know that this is actually probably an underreported number and that ambulance crashes do occur that don't get reported. There's also not a great database for ambulance crash reporting. So it's, it's admittedly a low number, but we have to recognize that safety in the back of the ambulance is incredibly important because even though we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to admit it, ambulance crashes do occur and they're occurring with some frequency. To that, NHTSA has issued safe pediatric transport recommendations. They have provided guidance to EMS agencies on the safest or the best way to transport our pediatric patients. The goal then is that those recommendations would roll out to our agencies and be implemented. Uh, the authors note this in their study, recognizing that there's previous data that suggests that these recommendations aren't always implemented by our frontline care providers, somewhere between the federal government rolling it out and the frontline care providers implementing it. Um, there's some disconnect that's probably typical of almost every recommendation that comes out nationwide. Um, but that's one of the things that this paper set out to look at to see see what are the provider perceptions on some of these things. Um, the authors also admitted that the adoption of the guidelines has been slow, and there's some, again, previous research that looks at why many of the frontline care providers are unfamiliar with the recommendations or their agencies are unfamiliar with that. I think if there's agency directors that are joining us today, they're probably thinking of the number of things that are on their plates today, checking to see what NHTSA's updates are on a regular basis, falls somewhere on the priority list, but probably not near the top when we look at all the different things we're working on on a daily basis. Basis. 
There's also additional research that indicates lack of adequate training is one of the reasons why these uh, recommendations don't follow suit, and we'll see that um, very much come clear in this study as well. There's organizational barriers, there's cost uh, limitation, limiting factors that uh, in preclude us from rolling out the greatest and best practices instantly. Um, and then the study admits this, and we'll see this come through in our study today as well. There's limited frequency and the number of pediatric transports we do. That means our providers are going to be less familiar with this, and it's easy to defer back to practice rather than the training that we did online a couple months ago um, and try and make that all familiar and, and, and remember all of those concepts. So I think that only adds to the problem. We know low frequency, high stress events oftentimes are the ones that can lead to the greatest error. Um, so we'll see if that shows through in our results here. I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Fernandez to tell us a little bit about the objectives for the study and the methods. Uh, this is, again, a unique operational study that we're looking at today. Well, thank you, Michael, and thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Um, we get to talk about a really cool and important study. Uh, we don't often talk about uh, qualitative research, and um, we're going to dive into that today. Uh, this was a quality improvement study, actually, and the objective of the study was to evaluate barriers and uh, facilitators of safe pediatric transport. At, and they did this at multiple levels. So they wanted to look at the individual level, the organizational level, uh, and the societal level. And they wanted to identify opportunities for improvement of the safe transport for pediatric patients. Um, we're talking specifically about grand tra ground transport in this study. Um, so that's important. And yeah, they had a whole host of, of different um, different populations that they that they brought into these into these focus groups. So uh, this was uh, staff at a level one pediatric trauma center. Uh, so they designed this quality improvement study to address the objective that we just talked about. And the idea here was they wanted to conduct these focus groups in 2021, and they looked at this was in New York State. Um, it was upstate. It looked like it was. It looks like it was in the Buffalo area, and they included uh, three paid EMS agencies um, in in the region uh, in the study. They also looked at some volunteer agencies. So the majority of calls in this area, particularly pediatric calls, are run by a single EMS agency, which is paid. Uh, they also have a volunteer agency in the area. And the focus group, they combined both um, career EMS professionals as well as volunteer EMS professionals. These were the... Sorry, sorry go ahead, Tony. Oh, I was just going to continue on and talk about the focus groups. Um, they, they, these, are, these are some uh, sophisticated focus groups. They held six of them uh, with a total of 64 EMS clinicians. In, throughout the study period. They're, they lasted about 90 minutes and they recruited folks in a whole host of ways. So they, they, they recruited a lot of folks, about 13 of them were recruited face-to-face. -face. They looked at some word of mouth and some email correspondence where they got the majority of the participants, about 51. In order to be eligible, they were had to be active uh, New York State certified EMS clinicians and they had to be from the agency that had the potential to transport the pediatric patients to their level one pediatric trauma center, the, the one that was in this region. They had, and the one of the interesting parts was they kind of met their participants where they were. So they were able to do three focus groups in a hospital setting, and they did another three focus groups in uh, an EMS station, uh, and they included it at the EMS station as part of a quality improvement effort specifically focused on pediatric restraints. Then the focus groups that were actually done at the EMS station, those were followed by some continuing education on uh, the best and proper ways to transport pediatric patients. They also had um, focus groups for individuals, leadership individuals. Uh, so indiv leadership positions at the four local EMS agencies were recruited to talk about some organizational factors, uh, facilitators and barriers to 
to transporting um, patients along with the best practices, pediatric patients, that is. And part of this was to understand if there are policies that are that are in place or if there were um, what equipment is available and, and other other things that would be better answered at the the leadership level rather than our field providers here. Uh, the, the study was was uh, IRB approved, of course, and uh, they asked the four focus groups were designed to guide discussions about EMS attitudes or safe pediatric practice. So they asked a bunch of questions specifically about knowledge of best practices, um, comfort in transporting pediatric patients. They looked for barriers of safe pediatric transport and the degree of training provided uh, specifically in pediatric transport. And then they were looking at some organizational norms and some clinician self-efficacy, which is uh, really interesting. How much did they believe that they were able to, to transport patients uh, in the appropriate and um, recommended ways? One of the things that was really interested, interesting, and you really got to hand it to research assistants. They often um, are unsung heroes of research projects. Uh, they had their research assistants acting as scribes. So essentially throughout these 90 minute sessions, they were taking notes and jotting down uh, kind of what was, what went through and what happened in the, in these focus groups. And then they worked together to come up with themes and, and kind of collate some of this information to make some sense out of it. And I am not, I, these, there, there are some times where um, I really wish that we did have the investigators on. Um, I am not a qualitative research expert, um, but I, I think it's fascinating work. Um, so we'll talk about some of the stuff we did, with some of the stuff they did in this um, in this project, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of weed our way through these. So they did what they call a semi-structured interview um, where they included questions to elicit perspectives on factors for safe pediatric transport at the administrative and the clinician level. Um, as we were talking about, they looked at organizational policy, best practice recommendations, uh, any mandated trainings, and um, the, the total time for the sessions was about 90 minutes, but they did have uh, interviews for about 15 to 20 minutes um, where they, they were conducted with a member specifically of the study team. Uh, they looked at, they recorded these, these sessions so that they were able to go back and transcribe uh, what actually happened and make some sense out of it. And they performed what is called a thematic content analysis. Um, and it was supervised by one of the lead authors uh, and three members of the team and three additional members of the team served as, as analysts. And I can't emphasize enough how much work it is to go through line by line um, and try and understand not only what was said in the meetings, particularly sometimes this is after the, this is mostly after the fact where a week, maybe more has gone by um, and they're, they're trying to come together and come up with themes and sub themes and um, supporting details to compile all this information and make some sense out of it. Uh, so I they, these methods were, were very sophisticated, qualitative methods. And the results that came out of this study are, are I think, really uh, enlightening. So I'm excited to get to those results. But before we do, I want to open it up to any of our other panelists to see if um, there are some things that either some questions about the methods or if there are some things that, that I missed or that we think we should emphasize a little bit more for our audience. Opening it up to Jeff or Bill for any thoughts on the methods. Sure. Thanks for your great overview, both of you. Um, and definitely commend the authors on this study. As someone who has been involved in some qualitative research myself, I was definitely very impressed with reading this reading about the methods and seeing that they stuck by CIFR, the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research, which is definitely considered um, kind of a gold standard of sorts when it comes to qualitative research. And their numbers, I mean, we're used to 
quantitative research having very large sample sizes, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, but that's very difficult in the qualitative world when we're actually talking about individual um, people that we're interviewing and including. And I was still quite impressed with their focus groups that they had six separate focus groups that included a total of 61 participants, I believe. Um, and I know kind of the wrangling involved, getting these consents, scheduling this, it ain't easy. And I thought it was great that they were able to do this. Um, and this wasn't just a single agency. It would be one thing to just stop at the largest EMS provider. But for these folks to try to find all the EMS agencies that were transporting in their region since realizing that this is something that there could be tremendous differences between different EMS agencies, I thought um, it definitely showed that these researchers put a lot of time and effort into their methods and making sure that this is as rigorous as possible. And then I guess... Um, as a researcher thinking about, you know, is this something that we could trust the results? I was thinking about internal and external validity. So the internal validity, um, is this something that, that their methods are sound? And I saw that they have folks on their team that are health services researchers that really know what they're doing. And they also had somebody involved in the focus groups who uh, is an expert in pediatric safe transport. As far as the external validity, they had research team members that were both EMTs as well as some, as well as a paramedic on their team. So th these were people who definitely knew a bit about EMS. Uh, so I think it was a very strong research team. And just reading about the methods alone, I'm definitely makes me curious to want to dive into the results. I, I couldn't agree more, Jeff, and I thought it was interesting. They, um, Batonia mentioned this too. They they took the study to the participants, right? Going to their EMS stations, going to the hospitals where they may or may be dropping off patients and things like that for this structured debriefing. Really helpful. It's not just, you're not just getting the people who were willing to come in, right? But going to them hopefully gives us a bit more um, breadth uh, in terms of how, what our, what our diversity is in our sample size um, and in our responders' opinion. So I really appreciated that aspect of it too. Um, I think with that, let's dive into the method or into the results. Um, Jeff, do you want to walk us through table one and table two, describing a little bit about our respondents? Sure, absolutely. Thank you, Michael. So table one and table two are kind of together what we both think of as our classic table one and a quantitative research study, where we're basically looking at the descriptive statistics of our sample without diving into the actual analysis itself. So we can see in our table one that focuses on our six um, focus groups. And it's nice that the researchers broke down our participants in each. And you could see there are some that were quite small um, with three. And then there was one volunteer agency that had up to 29 participants. And it was nice to see that the geography really was quite diverse. I mean, there were agencies that were strictly rural, suburban, urban agencies. And by and large, most of the EMS providers, on average, the majority of, the, of them had over three years of experience. So I'm thinking that these are people in the focus group that um, have, you know, a couple of years under their belt and have seen a decent number of pediatric patients by that point. And again, agency type, we see that uh, both paid as well as volunteer agencies, since we know that volunteer agencies are very common around the country, but might not have as many resources as those that are private or full-time. And then looking at our interviews in table two, so the interviews were those one-on-one -on -one kind of 15 to 25 minute interviews with key agency leaders. There were four of them and we saw they were all paramedics and they'd all been in their position for a decent amount of time. They've been in EMS for a couple of decades uh, and they were all in this general Buffalo, New York area 
um, where quite suburban, a bit of rural as well. And then in terms of estimating their pediatric transports, generally around 10% or so. One agency uh, reported 20 to 25% pediatric transports, which to me struck me as huge number, but uh, I'm not quite sure how many they have um, in the first place. But we can see that a pretty nice size uh, group of both the focus groups and the interviewees. So again, this table shows that we have a nice group and uh, makes me think that the results are probably fairly representative of what we might be seeing in other agencies around the country since they did do their best to kind of picking a diverse population within their geographic region. Yeah, I always appreciate when we can look at the differences in EMS agency type. I think oftentimes it's easy to get the people for the paid services together, not only to do the training, but to also get their opinions. Um, so I can appreciate having been a volunteer um, for a while. I can appreciate including some volunteer folks in your in your methods. You're exactly right. Sometimes our resources and, and training are limited in both. So I can I can appreciate that for sure. The rest of the analysis and the results is broken down into three different sort of categories with subcategories within each one of them. And that's really the meat and potatoes of this study and the part that we're going to spend the most time discussing. They broke down the themes from the focus groups into individual characteristics, so that of the provider level. Then they looked at what they called intercharacteristics. Those would be like agency level or organization level. And then they looked at what they call outer in, um, characteristics, which are really looking at sort of the the operations as a whole within the EMS community. We might call the societal level um, um, thoughts or perceptions. And so we'll start with sort of the characteristics of the individual, and then we'll work our way out um, as we go. But the the themes and the sub themes will be broken up in that manner. Um, and this is our opportunity to really dive deep into them because the study not only included these themes, but they also included some quotes from the injury from the people that they were evaluating from the, the um, clinicians. So I think it's really interesting to look at what the themes were and then some of the comments and the quotes that were made um, that were included because they really the quotes really do hit home. These are true perceptions of EMS providers um, in good, bad, or indifferent. The perceptions are what are driving practice out there. So the perceptions are good, then we need to reinforce them. If the perceptions are not based in policy or fact, then that's what requires some additional education um, sort of following our just culture method. The characteristics of the first two subcategories of the characteristics um, for the individual percept, uh, preceptor or provider clinician um, we're really based in their knowledge and beliefs and then their behaviors and motivations. And we oftentimes think that our knowledge and beliefs drive our behaviors and our motivations. Um, but I thought it was very interesting in this study that they actually sort of debunk that a little bit. And I think this is pretty common. We oftentimes in our minds, we know what we should do. It's whether or not we actually go do it that is the next question. Um, and this study did a nice job in this result section discussing how, what the barriers to implementation are, what the barriers to, or the limitations in fact are. Um, so under the knowledge and beliefs um, subcategory, they found several different knowledge and beliefs of clinicians, um, including that the preceptors commonly believe that children are inherently more difficult to transport. Um, I don't have any disagreement with that. They tend to um, you know, be a little bit more difficult to actually manage in the back of an ambulance, um, that can change how we, that can change the methods of our transport. And that's in fact what the study found. They also um, quoted some providers that noted a heightened sense of urgency during the transport. We need to get the child, we need to get them to the hospital. And sometimes that means we're going to overlook some things in the process of doing so. They also noted that providers felt like they had very little or no formal training on any restraint system for pediatric transports, um, and that there was a need for buy-in amongst the providers that if they did have these devices, they didn't necessarily know why they had them, um, or the perception was that they weren't necessary. Uh, I, I can't say that my perceptions as a provider, and I'm, I'm going to open it up to everybody else, but I can't say that my perceptions um, as a provider would be much different than what we noted in the results section. Um, open for some thoughts.
Sorry, I was looking for my my mute button here. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, you know, I think that it, it, it's really interesting. Some of the things uh, that they were talking about here, particularly that the child is, uh, you, you had some comments about the child being inherently more difficult to transport. Um, I wonder what that what they mean here by by difficult, right? Because it's it's. I think that in some cases, and we this is borne out a little bit as we get to the results, but in some cases, um, it's it's the equipment that's available, not not necessarily that the child themselves is difficult to transport, right? And a lot of them you can just pick up and go, um, but you know where are you going to put them? Do you have the right equipment to keep them safe and the like? I think that's. Um, that's that's something that we certainly uh, will dig into as we go as we move forward into these results. Um, that heightened sense of urgency, right? If you don't see them often, for certainly uh, you th these these can be some some more taxing uh, mentally taxing calls, um, and especially when you couple that with uh, the need for little training. Um, certainly, transporting in the mother's arms. Is this is the easiest, but right? Is it is it really the safest, right? Is that is that the best way to go? So, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of things that inherently we we feel as folks who've been in the field before. But um, you know, it's really nice to when when you can get this into a publication where they use some statistical methods and um, some scientific methods to pull out this information. I think. Uh, um, it it it'll open eyes outside of those who of us who've actually uh, done this in the field. I think the educator in me, Tony, makes me think that like, gosh, this is an opportunity for us. Um, we can, if it's the heightened sense of urgency, then we need to train on that. We need to practice in that. We need to do some stress induction training where we actually put people in those real life situations so that we can do some stress inoculation. Um, if there's no formal training or it's just online videos, I think to myself, I couldn't think of a worse way to, to teach you patient handling than making you watch a video. Um, but it does make me think on the initial education side, the number of programs out there that may or may not have a pediatric restraint device and teach their students. We spend, we actually at UCLA, we have a patient handling lab where we do this. We have a lifting and moving lab. We have stair chairs and gurneys, um, but it does make me wonder how many students get that even in their initial education of how to secure a pediatric patient to an ambulance um, gurney. I also think, you know, many of our initial education students come from this 18 to 25 year old demographic where they've probably never had to put a car seat in a car. They don't, they yeah. probably couldn't tell you how to safely secure a car seat to a, a ambulance stretcher. Um, and if they're not being taught that, then how do we expect that they would know how to do that? And then instead in the middle of the heightened sense of urgency and transporting a kid, you're not going to learn it then um, if you've not learned it in the past. So you're going to resort to whatever method seems easiest. Um, so it makes me think as an educator, we have some opportunities here to grow. Um, I, I want to hit the behaviors and motivations here too, because this the providers were very clear that the majority of the transport takes place on mother's arms. And the, even the researchers note this in their study that the providers note that this is probably not the ideal way to do it. And some of them note that I know I shouldn't be doing it this way. Again, the educator in me starts to think, okay, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. Then why are you have, what have we not equipped you with to make sure that you have the access to the right decision um, and the right decision-making tool? We, we see this with medication administration all the time. The barrier to administering is, is doing the medication calculation. If I can give you the chart, that means you don't have to do the math. You're lots more likely to give the medication because I'm removing the barrier to success. So I, I just go back to the study. It's one more thing that we're like, okay, what's the limitation? What's the challenge um, to getting you to not do that? If this ambulance were to end up upside down, you will not still be holding on to the child. Um, the gravitational forces are unlikely to withstand mom's arms, you know? Um, and then the other motivation and behavior and then open for everyone's feedback was technical guidance and safety specs were challenging to understand. Uh, I've never looked at the um, manual that comes with some of the different pediatric restraint devices, but I can only imagine they are robust um, in nature. And I probably am not going to read through all 600 pages of it. So again, the educator in me says we need to figure out how to make this easier. Um, Bill, Jeff, Tony, what are your thoughts? Yep, great thoughts on this and definitely agree that this is not a straightforward subject. Um, and this is something that I commend you for making sure that you're 
EMT students come out prepared to handle this. But at the same time, the reality is that we don't see a ton of pediatric patients. I mean, our call volume the, in the paper, it states that it's only about 5% of our call volume. Of course, that varies, but I mean, kids are relatively infrequent that there's not a lot of reinforcement of these pediatric restraint devices. And I think that's why when we are seeing these kids that we're not used to seeing critically ill kids, because most of the kids that we're seeing are not say that they're not sick, but they're, we might have a bit more time, but it's just, uh, we don't have those repetitions of using safe pediatric transport devices. And I think this is something that was picked up on in those NHTSA guidelines. That was something I was looking back on it. That was over a decade ago. So that was in 2012 that the NHTSA guidelines were published. And that was based on a focus group or their own focus groups and working groups from 2008. So almost 15 years ago that we know that this is an issue. And yes, there's not a lot of research now. There wasn't a lot of research then, but we still knew that the way we were doing things was not okay back then. Um, that it was interesting to see that the guidance and those guidelines, which do provide some nice flow charts for how to approach um, pediatric safe transport. I guess, speaking from my personal experience as an EMS provider, I had a kind of interesting perspective. So working in Pennsylvania, where they decided to implement NHTSA's guidelines and incorporating a lot of that into the actual state EMS protocols. And it took about two or three years. So I want to say it was 2014 or 2015, where all of a sudden, out of the blue, we went from having no transport guidelines to now we have a state protocol telling us exactly what to do, use this flow chart, this is how to approach it, car seats are maybe okay here, you should have an approved pediatric uh, transport device and other settings. And that was something that we all got a good bit of training when this protocol was rolled out pretty much overnight. So I would say that I felt fairly confident at the time since before then it was just agency policies, which can vary dramatically, but having this kind of rigid state guideline, which incorporated those NHTSA evidence-based practice guidelines was definitely helpful. But I know Pennsylvania did that, but most states I don't think have something similar. So again, it varies a lot from agency to agency and state to state. Yeah, I uh, couldn't agree I'll more. Provide, I'll provide my two cents. And I think that even when you go to the textbooks, at least for initial education, they are they are mimicking stuff that's been done in the past, but not necessarily with any evidence that supports it. And again, I don't know how much time someone spends in their curriculum, you know, doing it and then. Some infants, you know, uh, particularly when they talk about, um, you know, limiting spinal immobilization and stuff, those can be all very difficult kinds of things to do. And you may actually cause more harm than than good. But still, how do you safely, that's the optimal word, safely transport these people to the hospital, whether they're sick or not sick. And there's times when they're not sick, that's the car accident where the adult is injured and needs to go to the hospital and there's a child there. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing and probably something that even needs greater attention. I'm not sure we'll ever be able to do, you know, uh, the type of research we'd be able to do it since it's such a low transport type thing with these kids and stuff. But, uh, it's fascinating. I'm happy they did the work to even bring the subject up. Yeah, I think, and Bill, you had mentioned this when we were offline too, that um, I, the even the car seat manufacturers would recommend that you not transport in a car seat once it's been in a motor vehicle collision. So in essence, you're, you may be stuck on this motor vehicle collision scene asking yourself like, well, okay, the car seat may be intact. Can I use it? Can I not use it? There's a lack of ownership and who actually makes that decision. We don't want the, the car seat manufacturer doesn't want the liability. EMS doesn't want the liability. So we end up sort of, again, trying to troubleshoot 
this process um, that may or may not be the safest way to transport. I think that's a good segue as well into what they call their inner settings or um, what you might think of as their organizational thoughts on um, what the provider's impressions were. Yeah, and just real quick, it says from NHTSA, NHTSA says recommends that parents replace car seats following a moderate to severe crash to keep kids as safe as possible. But again, those that's a very subjective thing. What is moderate? You know, we probably can tell what severe is, but, you know, then there's this big gray area of what would be considered a moderate and acceptable. Yeah. And especially again, I've I have no idea about the car, the the crash scene investigation, but how much force did your car seat actually endure? Um, you know, what's again, everyone's avoiding the liability. Um, uh, on the organizational side, they note some uh, organizational readiness um, included in the sub theme includes things like equipment availability and inco incompatibility. Um, again, I think it's great for us to say this is the device we're going to use. Um, but until we actually get hands on and put it on our devices and we actually practice, I think oftentimes, again, we practice with mannequins who are not um, irritated that they are in the back of the ambulance. They're not crying. They're not flailing around. They're, you know, fairly agreeable when it comes to strapping them into a car seat. Um, and then lack of training on an organizational front. Again, we continue to see this sort of educational side coming through. Um, we noted this on the last one as well, in terms of how we monitor and enforce safe transport. There's really no metric for this. Um, there's no checkbox. There's no, no one's jumping in the back of the ambulance to see how you're securing your your infant. I had one thought on this and it made me it made me think that um, maybe part of the reason there's no monitoring of this is because we don't have a clear cut process or policy. Um, the last thing you want to do is jump in the back of an ambulance, see something not being done right, and then be asked, well, okay, what should I be doing? If we don't have a clear cut process or policy on it, then what guidance can I as a you know supervisor or director provide? Um, and then norms and values, they noted this sort of these cultural norms that we see within organizations, which oftentimes are things like traditions that are very strong and difficult to overcome in terms of organizational barriers. Um, and they noted the inertia to change. Uh, and I think we could you could cite this in just about any process improvement plan in any EMS organization. There are some people that are very set in the way they've always done it. And thus, that's the way they're always going to do it. Um, the mantra that drives me crazy, but at the end of the day, it's still there and you still have to overcome it. Um, they also noted, and I thought this was one of the more interesting points, that there's pressure in this a bit of a service climate or a, a customer service organizational front um, to do what's most comfortable or the patient preference. Um, and, and this one really struck a chord with me. As I thought, if you know it's unsafe, why would you give the patient or the parent the option of doing it? Um, if you're like, well, why don't you know, it's not the safest thing, but if you want to hold your kid during transport, that's okay. Um, I can think of some other unsafe actions that I would tell I, I would tell my patient or the parent, like, no, that's really not safe. This is this is what we need to do. Um, and and I that can be the patient perception. It could be that there's concern that if the parent, you know, calls the station later and complains that there's not going to be support for the provider. I'm not sure. I just thought it was an interesting um, aspect that I would not have thought of if you asked me what are the organizational settings that really, um, um, you know, prohibit us from doing safe pediatric transport and um, opening it up to the group on on thoughts on some of the different organizational factors um, regarding safe patient uh, pediatric transport. I'm someone, um, I'm a bit biased towards policy changes and thinking about the NHTSA guidelines and then my own experience being in Pennsylvania when they had that new policy rolling out. But I think it's so important that we don't just implement these policies and all of a sudden there's the policy and that's it. I think this monitoring and enforcing safe transport is such a key component. Um, I mean, I think back to something kind of a maxim that I'm sure we've all heard that what gets measured is what gets done. And if we're not measuring this, we just have this policy, but it's not being tracked and we're not actually looking um, in our PCRs or there's maybe not somewhere to even record it in the first place, um, then it's not gonna necessarily get done. And if there aren't consequences in terms of enforcement, then again, it might not also get done. And these consequences don't necessarily need to be 
punitive in nature, but often can just be education, re-education in terms of what the latest and most updated policies are. Thought it was interesting looking at one of the quotes where they said um, in one of the agencies, we've actually taken people offline for failure to comply with the training. So I wasn't sure if that was uh, for people who just didn't take the training at all or people who didn't implement the training, as in they didn't use the pediatric transport devices. But I think if people are taken offline, pulled off the ambulance, they're going to get the message. So it's really all about um, monitoring and enforcement, I think. Absolutely. I can, and I can think of a lot of um, less um, disastrous consequences of people being taken off the ambulance than not properly restraining their pediatric patients. So I think, again, yeah, a policy change usually impacts about 5 to 10% of performance. It's all the other stuff they do afterwards that tends to, so I think you're, you're spot on, Jeff. Uh, Bill, Tony, other thoughts? Well, I, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I think it's interesting to dive into the uh, variability in, in support, right? So we we want to, uh, in 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 a thirty thousand foot view, right? We we all want to transport our pediatric patients in the most appropriate and safest way, right? Um, but what does that mean when you actually get on the ground and uh, when you you were talking about policies and the like and just what equipment, what training is available? Um, that the understanding that in this one region, right, um, that there was some variability is kind of a, a, a microcosm of what we probably will see around the around the nation in terms of variability and support. And um, metrics, we talked a little bit about that, getting some metrics around this, I think will help. We talk about uh, often on this podcast, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it, right? Um, so getting some metrics and seeing where we are uh, right now, um, a little bit that would be a little bit more of a, uh, a quantitative uh, measure, but um, it it would be a start. And there's there are some great organizations that are going through the process of making uh, measures that are evidence based. One of them that comes to mind is uh, Nemsqua, um EMS evidence based measures, and um, I know they had they have a, a new set of measures that just came out. Um, but it would be interesting to see in the future uh, if they're able to dive into this as well. I'm so glad you brought up NIMSCO, Tony, because when I saw their last five recommendations, one of them includes pediatric restraint device used for pediatric, or just a restraint device used for all pediatric patients. Um, and we had picked this study before that came out. So I was really happy, um, a personal accolade of like, yes, there are other people in this world who care about this topic as much as some of us do. So uh, I think as we start looking at how do we track this and how do we collect the data, um, NIMSCO is moving in the right direction direction as well. So there, there were some other, um, there were some other inner settings or sort of organizational settings that they found uh, that they also thought were important in sharing. And two of those, the last two were compatibility of organizational policies and transport distance, pace, size, and culture of the organization. For compatibility of organizational policies, they said um, things like changing policies um, or um, they said sort of sometimes these are guidelines and sometimes these are policies and that can make it difficult for the providers. The providers felt that that made it sometimes difficult to understand what they were actually supposed to do. Um, there was noted to be a culture in some organizations to wear seatbelts and other organizations where they were not wearing seatbelts. And the providers noted that they thought there was some connection there between whether we're wearing seatbelts or not and whether we're properly restraining the child. And that seems logical in my mind. Um, and then again, this sort of lack of policy or protocol, um, despite the fact that the study said that in New York, it's required that the providers wear a seatbelt in the back of the ambulance. Um, even some of the comments noted that it was a little bit difficult to actually um, know whether or not they were supposed to wear it, despite the fact there's sort of this law that says you have to, the organizational policies were not as clear. 
Um, in terms of transport distance, pace, size, and culture, um, it was noted that typically when there's shorter distances for transport, typically in urban centers, there was a there was a feeling that they didn't need to use the restraint device or it was safer to transport um, because they weren't going quite as far and they weren't going at high rates of speed. The, the researchers note that about a third of ambulance collisions occur in that setting. Um, so maybe that's not quite as true as we think it is. Um, and then they, the study also noted that larger agencies have limited control over what's expected in sort of how to carry out the monitoring of this. Um, so I thought that was interesting where sometimes we think less resources equals less ability to comply, whereas actually you might have a little bit better control over a smaller agency, um, or at least that's what the researchers noted in their study. Um, thoughts from the group? I thought the seatbelt piece was interesting. I mean, reading this article at first, I thought, okay, this is all about pediatric transport. This is all about our kids. This is all about the patients. And then seeing that uh, section where they're talking about EMS provider seatbelt use, at first I was thinking, wait, what is this doing in here? And I realized, yeah, this is, we could have a whole nother, I mean, this is, could go on a whole rabbit hole down uh, EMS provider seatbelt use, but it's something that if we are not following our, our own policies, I mean, we all know that there are yet thousands of ambulance crashes a year, unfortunately, EMTs and paramedics that are seriously injured, killed, that probably could have been saved by wearing a seatbelt, and if we're not doing the things to take care of ourselves, um, kind of also probably struggle with doing these same safety measures to take care of our patients. So I think, uh, I mean, not to say that we wanna be dividing our attention too much, but at the same time, we have to look at both of these almost as a bigger safety culture issue, since it's not just one isolated issue with pediatric transport when there are other issues with just transport safety in general. Absolutely. How can we take our own safety? How can we take other safety seriously if we're not taking ourselves safe? Yeah, absolutely. Tony, Bill, any thoughts on the organizational settings? Yeah, I think that, um, again, the it's just interesting. Changing, there's so much around policy, right, that, that, that we keep coming back to the, the changing policy or the lack of a policy or a protocol. Um, you know, the, it's, it's interesting, like, Right. What's worse, right? That it, policies that's, that's constantly changing, or um, just not having a policy in general. I think that you get you're going to get similar outcomes with both. And um, this this kind of comes back to you know an overall theme here that that I feel like we've been saying is you know is this is something that that we need to as as a as a field as an industry come together on and and, and standardize. Um, obviously, there are going to be differences in rural and urban areas and, and differences in jurisdictions, but um, having consistent policy from one EMS organization to the next, I think, would be a huge step. I thought one of the quotes that stood out to me was, yes, we have a crew safety belt policy, both in the front and rear, although I will say most crew in the rear choose not to utilize Again, I, I go back to there, there's a disconnect there. There's lots of reasons there could be that disconnect. But if I'm the leader and that's who they cite here as the chief is I'm recognizing there's this disconnect. At some point in time, it's got to become a priority to fix um, and to implement it. It's and to, what, what we choose to accept, we, you know, we allow or we allow, we accept. So um, to me, again, it goes back to if you know people aren't following the policy, there is, there is actually some liability there, but some concerns there. The other thing that I noted that I thought was interesting in the authors note this, that um, we sometimes talk about unconscious, uh, un, uh, unconscious bias and how we treat some patient populations different than others. This note that we're transporting patients from urban centers without seatbelts, whereas we might treat somebody from a farther distance differently, goes back in my mind of some of these unconditional biases where, again, we're treating someone in this setting, we're actually giving someone coming from an urban setting a less safe transport, which could increase the risk of danger to them or in fact, the the injuries to them. Um, we oftentimes talk about how you know as EMS providers, we're out to do the most good for the most people, and general, you know, are the some of the most compassionate healthcare providers out there. And we're not intending to treat people differently, but the perceptions from the providers in the urban settings note that 
they are treating people differently um, if they've got a shorter transport time, despite really the evidence saying that the crashes still do occur. To me, that's another opportunity for some education. Um, we should be treating the patient the best way we can, which is the safest way we can. Um, so I thought that was worth noting when we, as we continue to have conversations in some of our other research articles on these unconditional biases. The next results section looked at sort of what I would call societal factors or settings. They call it outer settings in the study here. Um, but they talk about patient volume and demand. Um, and then they talk about some external incentives. In terms of uh, patient volume and demand, um, the lower the volume, the lower the demand of actually improving the process. And I think that's been pretty consistent throughout the, the perceptions of the individual providers as well. And then external incentives. Um, it seems like there's this request from the agencies to have someone else tell them what they should be doing. It's noted that state mandates were pretty influential in developing and changing policy. This gets the you know the agency control out of it and just says, this is the state law, this is what we're going to do. Um, there's also some notes sort of on a generality in EMS that the devices that were given aren't the best and are not working. And thus there's a call for develop, you know, technology development or equipment development in this space to improve the process, to make it easier to use, um, thus allowing a bit more adoption. And then this conflict that I feel like we have all the time in many different practices where the the way the policy is written versus the way we practice in the field tend to be a little bit different um, or a lot different than the study notes that is a general perception of the providers is what the policy says I'm supposed to do and what I'm actually capable or can do are different. Uh, and I think that, again, goes back to the people that are writing the policies should be the people that have to follow them. If you've got a policy writing committee, it should include frontline care providers so they can tell you, like, there's no way this is possible in the pre-hospital setting. Um, and so you can have those conversations of, of overcoming limitations and barriers. So thoughts from the group on um, some of these um, sort of societal factors in EMS. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting when you have a policy that tells you to do something that you can't do. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, this this is this quality improvement project, I think hopefully in this region, uh, one of the things that they get out of this is not just the information that they pulled out of the focus groups, but that they can uh, utilize field level providers to help make some of these decisions and drive some policy um, because they were already able to uh, get them together to get important information out for these focus groups. Um, you can tell that they're engaged and they want they want to uh, have their voices to be heard. And I think that they would they'd be invaluable um, to to get them involved in what what policies will actually work and what won't. Absolutely. Any thoughts, Bill or Jeff? Well, my thoughts come in also. I think that I'm not sure, don't remember if it's we're going to cut on this, but this um, a culture of safety where providers feel empowered to act in the best interest of the patient. You know, and the one thing that comes to my mind, and it was a, a real big issue in, when I was at my agency in Kansas, was using the shoulder straps for adult patients when they were in their stretcher. And, and even though it was mandated, quote, by policy, it really took the individuals in the field saying, uh, no, we're going to attach these. You know, I mean, even to individuals that weren't going to use them, they would suddenly come over and pull the straps down and say, hey, we need to use these. And then even simple ways that when you put the cot back together, the those straps were buckled in. So you had to, to see them and physically touch them. And the same thing comes across to me with pediatric stuff, if someone's holding uh, a patient, you know, in their arms and thinks this is okay in the back of the ambulance to get to the hospital, th there's got to be that mindset around there that says, no, we, we can't do this this way. This isn't safe. You know, what happens if there's an accident or anything like that? You know, we've all probably heard it. It says, please don't be on the front page of the local news or the top story of the evening, you know, and those are, th this should be a driving factor there. Yeah, I think so true, Bill. And as we talk about culture of safety, and, and that includes things like just culture, where you have not only the opportunity, but the obligation to speak up in an unsafe act it includes the concepts of crew resource management come to mind as well. Um, uh, other thoughts or final thoughts from the group as we're in our last five minutes here? I was just going to add in as far as 
um, external incentives for safe transport, the importance of EMS crew buy-in. There was uh, a quote, an anecdote about, we need a safety device that lets you strap a baby to mom. That would be really nice for transporting. And that does sound pretty cool. I don't realistically, not say that it can't be invented, but um, this could be why EMS providers potentially are still clinging to these old theories since they think that would be most effective, that perhaps trialing out some of these devices instead of an agency leader simply choosing, we're going to use this one device and all of a sudden we're implementing this, we're requiring it, we have a policy sort of allowing EMS providers to have some buy-in, even if they're not making that ultimate decision, involving them in sort of this safety culture transitional process, I think can potentially help in terms of compliance with these policies. If they're able to see what the alternatives are, they realize that this miracle device doesn't exist, but that the one that the agency goes for is better than maybe some of the others. And hopefully that can allow um, and get buy-in from day one. It makes me think too of why does baby need to be on mom's lap, right? We oftentimes have this conversation with our initial education students too on the, um, well, mom and baby need to be sort of chest to chest. And you're like, I, I understand the value that comes with that. But in the hospital, they don't do that. In the hospital, once baby's delivered, baby sort of whisked away, assessed, treated for anything. Um, we don't you know, attach baby to mom and never let go. Um, that so it's sort of like, well, this is what we're supposed to do, and you're like, yeah, but that's it's not that's not what you're supposed to do. In fact, actually, there's a better way to do this and a safer practice um, to it. So I think that's interesting. Uh, I want to note the sort of the last part of the discussion that the result that the authors note, and then open it up for anyone for everyone's final thoughts. But um, the authors literally wrote this in their discussion. I thought it was a good summary of what they found, which is the results indicate EMS agencies need to continue continue to enhance pediatric transport training offerings, adopt formal practices and policies regarding safe pediatric transport, and reinforce the importance of safe transport, particularly in urban environments close to hospitals. Um, to me, that really sums up the perceptions and the takeaways from this study um, in terms of what they really are focusing on in the provider perceptions. Um, final thoughts, um, how about Tony, Jeff, and Bill? Yeah, you know, I just want to congratulate the authors on on this work. This is um this is a whole lot of work to put these focus groups together, to plan for these focus groups and um just aside from just getting it published. Uh so I I want to commend the authors for getting this published, for doing some great work and um for really putting into the scientific literature so the things that I think we we all believed um but the way to impact change, right, is to get it published and tell the world. And and the authors took a huge step in that direction. So congratulations. I'll jump in and say the same thing and agree. I I always thank the authors to who have taken the time, put us together, and then willing to get it published. And then people like us beating them up in public. I mean, talking about it, discussing it in public and stuff like we do. And I think it's very important. And I hope we see more discussion on uh, patient safety in the back of the ambulance, crew safety in the back of the ambulance, not just pediatrics. It needs to be everyone that's involved. And we need to get to the mindset needs to be zero injuries involved in ambulances, no matter what it is, whether it be the patient, or the provider. You know, I continue to be distressed by even the recent events of, that have taken place and providers have been injured and killed and patients have been affected. We, we, we have the, I believe we have the wherewithal to truly achieve near no one uh, getting injured or killed in an ambulance. I think we really need to be pushing that way. Yeah, I would echo everything that y'all just said. This is definitely a very well done study, but at the same time, many of these results aren't surprising. I think what's important is what do we do with this? And what's the takeaway since, I mean, I, I'm hoping we don't see this same study redone very well done, but a decade from now that we know about all this, we know that this is something that just a single policy or single change isn't going to fix it. It'll take a multifactorial approach um, to really push towards that 
vision zero, as Bill was saying, that there really is no excuse for this anymore. We know about this. And I think the authors did a great job bringing this uh, topic up and emphasizing how there's so many different things that we could do to address it. So I want to commend them for, for starting this conversation. Hopefully we can continue it. I couldn't agree more. And as we round out our hour, I want to thank Tony, Jeff, and Bill for spending their hour with us sharing their insights. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we recommend that you join us in the future. The PCRF Education Research Podcast is Friday, November 24th. This is an interrater agreement between student and teacher assessments of endotracheal intubation skills. And our next clinical podcast will be Monday, December 11th, where we're looking at frequency, type, and degree of potential harms of adverse safety events among pediatric emergency medical service encounters. Thank you so much for spending your hour with us talking research. All thanks to Limmer Education ESO for bringing us the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum podcast. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.